All right, so we've got our, yeah, we've got a lot of kids up today. I would love a, uh, so we have these two like youth groups. Uh, we have sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. Those are our cohort one or C1. And then we have third, fourth, and fifth graders who are C2 or our cohort two. Um, C1, you guys get to interact with me quite a bit because you've been doing this for a long time. So how about a C2 kid? Does a C2 kid want to be my volunteer real quick? Okay. Oh, Jonathan, I don't think, I, I see Bella's hand. Bella, do you like Snickers candy bars? Okay, come on up here. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Now, what I'd, lo I'd love for you to come up here onto this stage, madam. And there is a uh, kind of a, an urban legend, I don't know how true it is, about ways that people used to catch monkeys. And they would put a box with a hole in it, and can you put your hand in there? See, you can put your hand all the way through, right? Now make a fist. Can you, make, can you get it out when you have a fist? Okay, so what they would do is put bait in there like this, and you wanna grab that candy bar, make a hot, tight fist, cause like, what if I try and take it? Can you get it out? No, you're trapped. Ah, and then somebody would just come and snatch up the little critter. So thank you for being a good sport. You may have this candy bar. Big hand, yes, yes. So as, the, as a legend habit, like, like the monkey gets so fixated on the banana or whatever the bait is, so fixated on wanting the one thing that all kinds of logic goes out of its mind. And even when the hunter or whoever comes to, to try and snatch it up for whatever reason, the monkey is like, no, I am not letting go of this candy bar or this banana or whatever it is that they want. And the question is, I guess, the monkey thinks it has the banana, but really the monkey is the one captured because it is so obsessed with getting the one thing. Psychologists have recognized this phenomenon. It's actually called the uh, monkey trap paradox in psychology. Uh, and uh, it, it's part of the reason, or a way of explaining why people stay, for instance, in an abusive relationship. Like, I know this isn't good for me, um, but I just want to hold on to this one person or this one thing. Um, it's why maybe people stay involved in an addiction when they know it's killing them and killing the relationships around them, but they so obsess about the one thing, they're unwilling to let it go. In the world of Christian faith and spiritual formation, the ancients used the twin terms of attachment and detachment to talk about the things that uh, are, uh, we're obsessing over in our lives and talking about the disciplines that help us to release our grip on those things, detachment from the attachments. And during the season of Lent, followers of Jesus, like many of us in this room, are encouraged to take stock of their attachments. We're invited to take an honest look at the things and the people we're attached to and to decide to, to put those things out before the Lord and say, is this a healthy attachment or is this an unhealthy attachment? Is this thing that I'm making my life about helping me become more like a Jesus follower or is it hurting me from becoming more like Jesus? And during this season of Lent, we've been focusing at Lettered Streets on some disciplines to help simplify our lives. We've looked at the busyness of our lives and tried the discipline of silence and solitude, a way of detaching from unhealthy noise. And noise isn't just noise, like music or podcasts or TV. It's also just the busy noise, the constant activity that many of us are on on the treadmill. And you know I'm talking to the choir, or, or the, I'm preaching to myself right here. Um, We've explored the practice of fasting as a way of making sure that our appetites aren't out of alignment. Most of us discovered that our appetites 
kind of control us more than we control them. And that's, uh, so fasting can help us push back a little bit. Say, hey, belly, hey, body, I'm actually in charge here. And I, I, I don't like the way that you take over. <laughs> and last week, we focused on the way of simplicity in the realm of our material possessions. Our, our fears and anxieties about the world often have a way of causing us to insulate ourselves with, with the next great thing or gadget or material thing we think is going to make us feel better or protect us from things. And so we looked at the idea of maybe doing without some of those things for a while, or maybe altogether, and just seeing if life could be freer, if we really need those crutches. And you can see a common theme here. Whether it's busyness or out-of-control appetite or consumerism, the attachments are all ways of trusting ourselves or our world more than trusting in God. This evening, our subject is very much the same. Our text will question, really, and this gets to the heart of our loyalty to Jesus. But rather than focusing on the external things like activity or overindulging or the material possessions in our lives, Jesus will speak to one of the most sensitive areas in our American lives. He will seek to expose one of the most popular false gods we are tempted to worship every day, and that's our finances. So if you're able, would you stand with me as we take a look at Matthew 6, 19 through 34. Contextually, this fits right in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' teaching. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness! No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you'll eat or to what you'll drink, nor for your body as to what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the air that they do not sow or reap or gather into, your, into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, seriously, by being worried, could add a single hour to your life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. And yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory was clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is just thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows what you need, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, 
for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Lord, (laughs) rarely do words ring so true, need so little preaching when they just come off of the page. And yet these words are so offensive and come with so many yeah buts and so many walls. I recognize even in my own logic, in my own heart. So we're praying for a lot more than information this evening as we encounter this text. Holy Spirit, we pray for your ministry to get in and behind our defenses, behind the excuses I've already made and we've already made, and help us to see the good news in this passage. Amen. You may be seated. For those of you who like to know where we're going, a text like this divides up so nicely as an exegetical point of view. So there's four little sections, and there are two treasures, and two eyes, and two masters, and the answer to freedom from anxiety. This is, what a great sermon. So we're going to just take each one in turn, you know, and solve all the world's problems right here, right now. Um, One thing I just want to remind you of is this is, as I mentioned before, from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount which means that it is a gospel, which means that it is good news. So as much as this rubs us the wrong way, some of these things we're t- talking about my money, rubs us the wrong way, it, remember, it's good news. It's meant to set us free to be life-giving. All right. So word on treasure and the heart. I have to admit, every time I read this text and it says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth, you know what I'm saying? Like, honestly, like what comes to your mind? I'm thinking treasure chest. And it's like spilling over with gold bullion and like jewels and stuff like that. And that, that's just what I think of with treasure. And so automatically my mind goes to, well, that's not going to be a problem for me, Jesus. Like I don't have any treasures to store up. If nothing's buried in the backyard. Um, so anyway, what's helpful to see here is that in the Greek, the word for store up uh, actually has a connotation of canning. So like I thought it would be helpful when talking about treasure. I've got pickled beets. I think one of you gave us these, or anyway, probably a Morgan or somebody. Anyway, like pickled beets. Um, and so this is storing up something for the future. That could be a treasure, preparing for the future. It, it, we're not just talking about gold coins coming out of a treasure chest, but something that we're storing up for the future. And it's helpful also to know that the word for store up in Greek is from the same root as treasure. So here's what I'm getting at. Literally, the sentence should read, if we're being wooden in the translation, do not treasure treasures. Do not treasure treasures on earth. Now, what does that mean? Don't treasure pickled beets? Okay, I got that one. No problem. I'm not really hoarding pickled beets. I'm not really concerned about my heart being swayed by following Jesus because of my pickled beet obsession. Pickled asparagus, maybe, I don't know. The idea is something like this. Do not treasure earthly solutions to your future security. Do not treasure, do not put your stock in, do not treasure treasures that are mere earthly solutions to future security. But instead, treasure treasures in heaven For wherever your treasure is, wherever your focus is, wherever your faith is, there your heart, your soul, your being, your focus will be also. So is Jesus literally saying, don't have a savings account, don't plan for food in the winter, 
Don't hold on to any family heirlooms. Absolutely not. That's not what this is getting at. Jesus is not giving us a set of laws here. He's giving us his vision for the kingdom. Scripture as a whole is full of exhortation to work and to be prudent. Just just as earlier in this same chapter, Jesus affirms us giving to the poor. It's very difficult to give to the poor if you do not have anything. In the book of Acts, we read about uh, many of the churches taking a collection for the church in Jerusalem. These churches must have had economic means to give, right? And in Acts 16, we learn of this disciple named Lydia who was very wealthy. And Jesus himself was supported by people with means, many of them women. So money and wealth can be and should be used for good and for the good of others as well as for enjoyment. Like Jesus isn't saying there's anything bad about money. On the other hand, Jesus warns us as a loving Lord, like be really careful with it. It's like dynamite. It's super powerful and can do a lot of good work really quickly, but it will blow you up. Beware of greed. And he tells this parable that Nancy read earlier about this rich man, and and he's run out of storage room because his crops did so well. And so he just says to himself, self, what should I do? I've got all this extra grain. My barns are full. I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns, and I will just fill them up, and then I will be set for life. And it says, I'll take my ease and just cruise. And I'm not not preaching on Luke 12 tonight. It's hard not to. But, But just as a cursory glance, in that passage, we notice that the man uses the word I six times in this little short parable. He uses the word I about himself six times. He uses the word my four times. And in all of his reasoning over what should I do with this windfall of grain? What should, I, what should I do about it? In all of his inner dialogue or monologue, I should say, never once does he consider helping anyone else or giving some to, to God or any of those kind of things. It's all what he should do. And Jesus calls him a fool because when death comes, all he worked for is going to be gone. And Jesus said, instead, we should seek to be rich in God. Now, the the issue is actually surprisingly practical. In our text, Jesus does not stay, he does does not say, do not store up for yourselves treasures. Instead, he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? It's a bad investment. Like, Jesus is really giving us investment advice. Dale Bruner insightfully points out that moths and rust and thieves represent the demise of earthly treasure. The moth represents nature, and nature has a way of reminding us of our impermanence. In the first century, there were no banks or stock markets to put your, your belongings, your money. So what, what happened? You, 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 you turn your crops into coins, and then you bury your coins, maybe in the earthen wall of your adobe-type house or in the floor of your home. Or people could purchase expensive things, like linens were very expensive, especially dyed linen. So if I, I've got a windfall of crops and I want to shrink down its value, I can turn it into a coin or into linen. And I can hang those up in my house. So moths could eat fine linens, and nature's power through storms and erosion could take property in homes. Rust represents the corrosive power of time. Time will eventually corrode coins. Time will take the vigor out of ambitious young people who then become ambitious 
middle-aged people who can't hang anymore with the younger people. And then, you know what I'm saying? I'm not saying anyone here, just it happens. Time is the great equalizer. Nobody escapes it. And thieves represent the human aspect. In the first century, a thief could steal what you had buried in your house. And for you know, the ambitious person, there's always another coming who's willing to work harder and longer to get what you have. And ultimately, none of our modern investments are foolproof either. Eco economies are prone to recession. Anyone remember like 2008? Uh, and, and, and before that, and before that. And, and they're prone to depression, even worse than, than recession. Property can be destroyed or lose value. And eventually, sorry kids, everybody dies. It just happens. And Jesus says that we should make an investment not in earthly time-bound things, but in heaven. So what does that mean? Well, I just so happen to have a stack of deposit slips for the heavenly bank account. No, that's not, there's not like, he's not talking about this place where there's like a, like a Gringotts in heaven that's super secure and no one could ever get your stuff. It's, it's not so much about a place. You see, in first century Judaism, people would rarely say, I mean, they would never say Yahweh, they would say the Lord. And even, even it was rare to just say God. And so people would talk about heaven. Heaven was a way of circumlocating God. So really what this is saying is invest your focus your finances, your vigor, and your goals in God and what God is doing. And God is doing things on earth, so it's not just having your head in the clouds, but focused in what God is doing, and that's a worthy investment. Again, Bruner says it so well, so I'm just going to copy him. I'm quoting here. Look at a person's goals, and you'll find their gods. Where the Old Testament says, you shall have no other gods but me, Jesus also says, you shall have no other goals but me. For wherever our goals and focus and treasure is, that is where our time and our talent and our finances will be. That, that's where our heart will be. And it's true. So true. Now pause. Just, and youth kids, you can ask yourself, the same way. This is an important question for everybody to ask. The younger, the better, I say. Ask yourself the question, what is money for? What is money for? Write it down in your bulletin. Ponder it later, because you probably won't have your list complete here during the sermon. But what is money for? What are my financial investments for? And then imagine Jesus sitting with you and ask yourself those same questions. Like he's right there. What is my money for? What are my financial investments for? Does my money work for me or do I work for money? And if my money is working for me, who am I working for? Like, who's my, not, I'm not talking about your boss at work. Like, what is it all about? Jesus encourages us to make good financial decisions because our financial lives reveal the health of our spiritual lives. Jesus wants us to be fully alive, which means that we should make sure we're investing in the work of the kingdom of God rather than just my own personal kingdom or your own personal kingdom. 
And then Jesus starts talking about these two kinds of eyes. He talks about having a good eye or having a bad eye, and the bad eye being filled with darkness, and what is all of this about? All right, just, just some weird stuff about ancient people that didn't really have physiology classes, or even dear Dr. Luke wasn't much of a medical doctor by today's standards, and so there are two schools of thought about eyes, and I know this is going to sound really weird, but maybe you'll get this on a trivia quiz someday. Um, one thought was that every object produces some kind of shadow, and that shadow of the substance, I'm just looking at the shadow of you right now, and you, part of you is coming into my eye, and here's the ancient thought, be careful what you look at because you take in some of the shadowy substance of everything you see. Okay? So that, that was one kind of philosophical thought. The second way to think of it is that your heart, your being, actually emanated meaning through your eyes, like, like, like headlights. So like now, it's not me just taking in, it's me like shooting lasers at you, like me emanating meaning out of my eyes. And in either case, the call here is to have a good eye. So if, like, you can forget all that other stuff. I'm just trying to explain it. But, like, the call here is to have a good eye, and that means to have a, a simple eye, an eye focused on treasure in heaven. If your eye is focused on what is perishable, and you make your life about that perishable thing, rather than Jesus, the light of the world, then the light that you have in you, that you're taking in, that you're focused on, is actually going to kill you in the end. Like if I'm so focused on that candy bar in the monkey trap, and the hunter's coming to get me, I may have the candy bar, but I've just lost everything else. I've lost my freedom. I've lost my personhood. So what is a simple eye or a good eye? Well, it means to have a generous disposition. The eye is linked with generosity throughout most of Scripture. One example is Matthew 20, 15. And then this is, this is the, the, the parable of the, the, the vineyard owner. And so the vineyard owner's out there, and he needs some workers. And so he grabs a, a Bob over here, Aiden. And Aiden starts at the beginning of the workday. No problem. You start at 8 o'clock? Just say yes. Yeah, you got it. You're at 8 o'clock. And then Chuck comes on at noon. Chuck starts working at noon. Aiden started at 8 o'clock. And then we've got Randy, who starts at 3. 5 o'clock comes around. I call all my workers, and I start paying them. And I told you all that I would pay you a denarius, right? So I pay Randy a denarius, and then I pay Chuck a denarius. Now, Chuck's been working three more hours than Randy, and he's kind of like, what? And then I pay Aiden a denarius. And he's like, I just worked way more than Randy did and quite a bit more than Chuck did. That's not fair. And Jesus says, brother, did I not say to you I would pay you a denarius? Or are you angry because your eye is evil? It means stingy. So to have a good eye means to have a generous disposition. To have a bad eye in Scripture or in the ancient world in many writings is to have a stingy heart. Okay? The good eye is generous because the one with the good eye, according to Jesus, treasures treasure in heaven. The good eye is simple. It's uncluttered. It's content. And thus it's able to hold on to possessions and resources with a very loose hand, recognizing that we are mere caretakers and stewards of our wealth and resources, not there to consume and to hoard for ourselves. 
And that's the real crux of Jesus' message. And he cuts to the chase in the third section. He just simply says, nobody can serve two masters. He does not say, no one should serve two masters because that would be difficult and complicated. He says, it's impossible. So stop trying to delude yourself into thinking it's possible. Sure, you may have two or more employers or two or more hobbies, but why do you work? Why do you play? Why do you relate to others? The answer to those questions will reveal your true master and my true master. If you work because you enjoy your job, and it's a good service to the community, and you do it for God's glory, your master is likely Jesus. But if you work long hours to escape home because it's more stressful at home than it is at work, or to finance your lifestyle of living the high life, your master is probably not God. It is probably something else. And you're investing all of that time to escape rather than live in reality. Jesus uses this Aramaic word called mammon. Kids, can you all say mammon? Mammon. I know it sounds like some kind of animal, maybe a mammal, but no, it's mammon. And this is an Aramaic word. It's kind of like a Hebrew language. And and it's used to describe um, physical substance like, like money or possessions. And by the time Jesus is using that word, it came to explain a false god, something else that we're putting our trust or our faith in. And most often, mammon had to do with money. Money is a great tool, but it is a horrible master. Now, so far as we've worked through this text, we've heard the problem. If we have a problem with addiction to trusting money more than God, then simply being aware of that problem It kind of makes it worse, doesn't it? It's like, I already knew that before I came here, but now you've just really highlighted it. Thank you, Chris. My money, or my hand is firmly in that trap and my fist is around it. Good good preaching. Pretty much all this has done is highlighted the problem. And I can't just say, especially after last week, if you heard that sermon, I can't say, just try harder. I can't say, you know, Jesus just says, Try and store up treasure, more treasure in heaven than treasure on earth. Try not to have more than one master. Try to have a better eye or something like that. He does not say try and do these things, right? Because trying, when you're already upside down, like I'm guessing, like I am upside down, but maybe you are too, and out of whack in this area, just trying to be better is so so impossible, right? And that's where verses 25 through 34 come in. That's why they're kind of connected to this part. Jesus gives us these convicting messages to kind of show us what we really are like, (gasps) and now he's going to give us how to handle it, how to deal with it. He knows we're anxious people. He knows what kind of betraying, seemingly unstable world we live in, and he knows how difficult it is to trust God to take care of us when it feels like everything around us is uncertain. Like Jesus, he doesn't just know conceptually. Remember, he was incarnate. Like he's crying blood in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Are you sure, Father, that this is the best plan for me to go to the cross? Like I've been with these people a long time. Everything else has been uncertain until this point. Can I trust you to go all the way? So Jesus really knows what it is to be worried, to be concerned. 
and he, and he feels our uncertainty. And so he puts our worry into perspective. Look at nature. Look at the tiniest birds. He says, your father cares for them. They don't function on greed. They don't worship finances, and yet your father feeds them. And then he does this kind of ancient rhetoric thing, this from lesser to greater. If for the birds, and they're like this big and sold for a penny, how much more? Men and women made in the image of God, how much more will I care for you? And honestly, I love this line, which of you by, adding a, 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 which of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Now, Jesus isn't advocating for foolishness, like if you, if you don't do anything, that food will just magically appear on your table, and money will show up in your bank account, so just hang out in your hammock all day, your father's got you, right? Like, he's not saying that. By the way, little birds work really hard for their food, especially the ones by my house, because there's these couple neighbor cats that are always stalking them, I'm, I'm thinking their, their days are numbered. The point is not whether or not to work hard. The point is what to work for. Jesus says if we stop worrying about mere survival and start focusing on the one thing necessary, the kingdom of God, then the Father will take care of the rest. Now here's the reality. Most of us are so stuck in the way that we've always done things. Most of us are so set in our ways in the way that we think about the world and our worries that being told, just don't worry, he cares for little birds, he'll care for you, that, that doesn't quite cut it, right? You can be honest with me, it doesn't cut it with me. That's like, a, that's like a real stretch, like, Jesus, 21st century, things are complicated, all right? But it doesn't make it any less true. It's a stretch to think that just by being told information, our hearts are going to change. So remember last week, when we talked about the need for training rather than just trying, right? Like, like we, we, we use all these different examples, but like you can, uh, well, Michael Holland here. Where's Michael? Yep, Michael ran chucking at 50K with Jen Warlin um, a couple weeks ago, right? Did you, did, like, had you run before that race? Trained a little bit, yeah. Uh, you don't just do a chucking at 50K with all that elevation gain, having never run before, uh, having never trained for it, right? So, so Michael could have just been a couch potato and then tried to run that race and be a crippled bag of whatever, or you just wouldn't have gotten very far, right? Like trying is fine, it's noble, but it's kind of frivolous if you don't also train when you're trying to do something difficult. And let me tell you, it is difficult to change our views and our hearts on finances, right? Like that's, that's difficult. So we need to train. We need to train so our hearts and our minds and our bodies will break their bad habits of dependence on mammon so they can become our allies in following Jesus. And so we start training with gratitude. And we've heard that word every week in this series, but it is the most common refrain in the Psalms and the New Testament letters for a reason. Gratitude and rejoicing in God are the foundational practices of a healthy disciple of Jesus. They tend to put things into perspective. And when it comes specifically to our finances, there are three training exercises that I want to leave us with. And your, your Lent devotionals, if, you're, if you've been going through those, those will help you work out the mechanics of these things. But, and I know cohort, like you, you, got, you got these little notes, I think. So here are the three training exercises. The first is tithing. 
If we are training to put the kingdom of God first and to trust the Father to be our provider, then it begins with the most basic commands of giving 10% of our income back to the God who gave it to us. The tithe in Scripture is designed with three main purposes, and the first and foundational purpose is to expand the believer's trust in God. When, when we give our 10% before taxes and before bills and before entertainment, it trains us to literally show that our money, not mammon, or our money is not mammon, that we're trusting in God before we trust in all of these other things. And then the, the tithe was also intended to be given at the local place of worship. So, you know, with the first community, it was the tabernacle. They just followed it around, or it followed them around as they followed God. And then it was the temple, and then we've got, like, synagogues and, and local churches. And we give that 10% to the local place of worship so that we can expand our, our, our influence, our ministry. We can serve other people as a community. And then the third thing is to provide for the ministers of that local community. So those are kind of the three reasons. And that, and that tithing is an exercise. Oh man, and, it, and it's so hard, right? Like when things are tight, or you'd rather do this than that. It, it's really showing, no, my God is God, and not my entertainment life, or my vacation life, or all of these other things. The second training exercise is frugality. Wealth, like I said before, is not evil, not evil at all, but it is dangerous. Jesus once said it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he, he was quick to say after that, when the disciples were like, who can get in then? He said, well, all things are possible with God, right? So it's not impossible, but that's a pretty stark metaphor a camel's really big, a needle's really little. I think the point is it's nearly impossible if our God becomes our wealth. That, that, that's a stark statement. And the reason for that is because wealth can insulate us very easily from any kind of dependence on God. Just as possessions can, and food can, and busyness can all kind of numb us to our need for Him, Wealth can do that about better than anything else because it's with wealth we can buy our possessions and it's with wealth we can buy the things that we consume and it's with wealth that we can keep ourselves busy either making wealth or spending it on all kinds of ways that we can entertain ourselves. It's just, you know, I've often thought, you know, I was looking at Justin and Bridget over there working at the mission, like when I interact with people at the mission, there's very little difference between them and me. The difference is if I fell off of, you know, got addicted to something or blew up my, um, oh, I never want to say it, like blew up my marriage or something like that, you know, like I, I have a safety net and there's, there's enough people of wealth in my family or there's enough reserve to hold me for a while and sometimes the difference is somebody else just didn't have that safety net. So wealth can really protect us from what's really going on in our lives. And that can be dangerous. So frugality is the discipline of putting things in the right order. We may not think we have a problem until we're asked to cut something out. Well, what can you do without this month during Lent? Uh, well, I, you know, I really like my, my coffee every day, you know? So, well, why don't you just try? Like, 
what could you do with those other extra six dollars a day or something like that or or um you know maybe you have like you realize i've got like 14 streaming subscriptions like do i really need all of these right now like maybe i can cut back on my my entertainment budget and uh and see what i can do for someone else with this money i was just spending on myself and, and one way to think through frugality would be to begin making a list of needs and wants just you know just jot it down when you're at home sometime and then here's here's where the rubber meets the road share that list with someone you trust like like maybe a spouse who like oh yeah you i, I know you you know you, that's kind of more of a, a want than a need or uh, maybe a parent like if you're a kid maybe share it with a parent or a youth leader or um uh, you know with a spiritual friend maybe it's somebody that you trust who is also a disciple of the lord and you say hey you know me pretty well like check out these lists. I was just, uh, am I rationalizing anything here? Probably, you know, so <laughs> I, I know it's, it's vulnerable, right? Like, you're all looking at me like, oh, that sucks. Why'd you? Thanks a lot, Chris. Um, I, I mean, I got to do it too. Maybe this week. Um, yeah, so frugality orders these priorities in our life. Um, and we get to see how balanced our needs and, and, and wants are. But you know, like, if you're saying to yourself, you know, I can't afford to tithe, but then in your wants list, you can afford, like, a lot of extra things that aren't needs. Like, why? Like, you might have to wrestle with that. I'm just saying, like, that's, that's a thing. Um, the point also, by the way, with frugality, isn't to cut out all of our wants and fun. Uh, like, just self-disclosure, one of my growing edges as I go to counseling and things like that, is to have more fun. Like I grew up in the kind of household and my role in that household didn't allow me to have much fun. So I like to work and I need to learn how to have more fun. And so I think that the Lord, when we're healthy, thriving human beings, there's a balance there. We enjoy, he wants us to enjoy this good creation and enjoy some good food and good glass of wine or whatever it is, you know, like he wants us to enjoy those things. We just got to be careful not to get them out of balance. That's what, that's fr what frugality can help us to do. Frugality is fasting for finances, if that helps you picture it a little bit better. Okay, finally, the third exercise. We've had tithing and we've had frugality. The third exercise is generosity. Tithing helps us to get a baseline of trust, like, okay, I'm just going to do it every month. I'm trusting God with this 10% of what he's given me. Frugality orders our priorities, but it's generosity that's the real big, like that's the point, like that's the joyful payoff of these other two disciplines. See how being frugal in a choice this week or in a choice this month might free up some resources in your life to help you be generous to somebody else. Who might you bless this week? How might you store up for uh, some treasure in heaven and be free from the corruption of mammon? I also want to just say, like, that sometimes, maybe you know somebody like this, sometimes frugality in itself can be a point of pride. And look at me, like, I never spend anything, but, like, I'm saving all of it for myself. So generosity also pokes through that kind of fallacy. If you're just being frugal because you love to show off that you're so frugal and you can live cheaply and then you have these big bank accounts, like, well, generosity helps 
relieve some of that pressure. Like give, it, give some of it away. Anyway, so this is a, a challenging passage, right? And it is good for us. But remember, remember this is all under the umbrella of Sermon on the Mount good news. This is Jesus' big, if you were to say, I wonder what Jesus, I wonder how he imagined the kingdom of heaven. I wonder, wonder what he was really getting at. Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Like that's it in a nutshell. It doesn't say everything, but says, says the most things about the kingdom. So this is, this is good news. This is, like, this is how you are free in your life. And, and, and that's what this is about. Jesus wants to set us free from bondage to mammon, from slavery to money as a false god that simply cannot save us. And the good news is that Jesus addresses this message in its original context, and so I believe so today as well. He addresses it to his disciples This isn't necessarily, even though it's good news, it's not an evangelism message. He's telling this to people who are already his people, right? People already saved by grace, people already in God's kingdom. This is not a message of the things you have to do before Jesus will love you and accept you or any kind of junk like that. It is an invitation into freedom that Jesus already died to give us. And that makes it really good news. Lord Jesus, thank you for being willing to say hard things to us. And thank you for the way that you do it so graciously and truly with our best interests in mind. And I pray, Lord, for increased freedom for every single one of us. Even those who are doing really well, would you show them what next steps can be? And Lord, for those who are just like, where do I even begin Pray for help, for grace in that area. Help us, Lord, also to be willing to, uh, uh, to be communal creatures like you intended us to be, to not sit with these things if we have problems by ourselves, but to, to share them with trusted people. Um, thank you that we don't have to walk alone. We love you, Lord.